listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured, episode 143. We've got Rachel Cohen on with us to talk about the road ahead for labor reform in a post-Trump world. But first, the news. Trump may be hobnobbing with the globalists on the chilly slopes of Davos, but back in his second home of Florida, things are heating up behind bars. Inmates across Florida's prison system went on strike in mid-January as part of a celebration of the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. They demanded an end to coerced labor, uh, fairer and humane working conditions, and just better treatment. They currently make pennies an hour, so you think it wouldn't be too hard to match their demands, but instead, corrections officers have doubled down. They've put facilities on lockdown, according to reports coming from inmates on the inside who are in contact with activists on the outside. And a massive social media solidarity campaign has erupted in the wake of the protests to offer support and to help raise awareness of the day-to-day misery that these people are subjected to. Uh, Florida's prison system is notorious for all sorts of human rights violations as well as labor violations. And according to a January 19th report by Miami New Times, uh, things have gotten worse since they decided to rise up. Uh, Quote, multiple labor organizing groups, civil rights organizations, and prisoners' rights advocates said yesterday that in the weeks leading up to the strike, the Department of Corrections preemptively began throwing protest organizers into cells that are basically solitary confinement. So they're basically being punished in advance for exercising their free speech rights. There have subsequently been things like sweeps to root out those carrying unauthorized cell phones and just a general suppression of any form of organizing activity. And it's not just fair wages they're complaining about. Their main rallying cry is simply to be treated like human beings. They want expanded access to parole and other basic mechanisms of due process, uh, cheaper and more reasonable prices uh, for basic food and hygiene items, quotes the New Times, and uh, voting rights for former felons, as well as an end to prison guard brutality. Florida's prison system, along with its entire criminal justice system, has been one of the key drivers of the state's patterns of mass disenfranchisement, racial segregation, and structural discrimination, which of course bleeds into the high poverty rate and intense housing and school segregation found across the state. Um, The campaign behind the strike, Operation Push, um, has been trying to meet with officials to negotiate a settlement, uh, but they've been stonewalled. And in a statement posted to Facebook last week, uh, they seem to be updating their social media pretty often. Uh, Operation Push reported, quote, Operation Push did not call for rebellions in the prisons, which are relatively frequent occurrences in Florida. Though they are bold and courageous acts, those events have not been effective in the communication of clear, specific demands such as PUSH has presented. Operation PUSH repeatedly called for the slow and steady process of economic impact through non-participation. In response to this, the Department of Corrections appears to be using a different approach of low-intensity psychological warfare rather than blunt force. In the absence of news reports about brutal repression and destructive responses, and as a result of the reduced communications access, we're left to wonder about details of what's actually going on inside. It's unclear what consequences the inmates will ultimately suffer for taking action, but they're clearly already being punished in many ways for speaking out simply by being silenced. And they have no choice, really, but to keep resisting. 
The Trump administration has not stopped its attempts to dismantle health care in the U.S. just because Congress couldn't pass full repeal of the Affordable Care Act. There were, of course, slices to the ACA in the Tax Cuts for Billionaires bill, and now the administration has announced that states are welcome to implement work requirements for Medicaid recipients. This plan relies on a welfare reform-style conception of Medicaid recipients not as low-wage workers, people with disabilities, the elderly, and those desperately trying to find work, but as, you know, lazy bums sitting around eating bonbons. This despite the fact that the Medicaid is a popular and widely loved program, the expansion of which was the most popular part of the Affordable Care Act, and the existence of which made people come out in droves to protest and save the Affordable Care Act from the Republicans' hatchet. I spoke with Rebecca Vallis of the Poverty Program at the Center for American Progress about what work requirements for Medicaid mean. What we've actually seen in the course of the past several uh, days is Trump, who now has learned that lesson, that legislation to dismantle Medicaid is going to be very difficult um, and not something he's necessarily going to be able to see folks in Congress, Republicans in Congress, push forward successfully. He's learned that lesson and he's decided, you know what, I guess I'm not going to wait for Congress to be able to dismantle Medicaid. I'm just going to do it by fiat. And that's actually exactly what we watched him do a little over a week ago. He, he put out an unprecedented set of guidance that basically said, hey, states, here you go. You are now for the first time in the five plus decade history of Medicaid allowed to take away health insurance from people who can't find a job or get enough hours at work. Um, and, and that's now what states are in the position to be able to take him up on doing. And Kentucky is the first state where we've watched this play out. Is that their request to, to take Trump up on that offer was approved, uh, basically in the same movement as Trump making this announcement. Um, and now we're going to be watching states across the country, mostly headed by Republican governors, looking to dismantle their state Medicaid programs because of the blank check that Trump has now given them. I just want to talk for a minute about the ridiculousness of work requirements for Medicaid, because this is a program that, among other things, provides 70-something percent of the funding for home health care aids for elderly and people with disabilities. I mean, work requirements. This is a program that literally provides health care for people who can't work. That's exactly right. And Trump calls them work requirements. And a lot of Republicans who like this kind of policy call it work requirements. But what it really is, is it's time limits on health insurance for people who can't find work. And, and and you can be pounding the pavement as hard as you possibly can trying to find a job or get enough hours from your boss. Um, but in, in this new world order that Trump has now thrust upon us, People who can't, through no fault of their own, find a job are now at risk of losing their health insurance. And so I, I think it's important to actually take a look at who the people are who receive Medicaid uh, and who are not currently working to get a, a sense of how this is going to play out. So when you actually look at, at that population of folks, most people who receive Medicaid are, are working themselves. It's become a work support program for largely low-wage workers. Um, and, and, but of people who aren't currently working and who who use Medicaid for their health insurance, 30% have caregiver obligations to kids or loved ones, 15% are students who are in school, 9% are retired. Um, 
Over a third report facing health problems, and then the rest are actually looking for work. So those are the supposed freeloaders that Trump is so worried about. The thing that we at the Center for American Progress are deeply, deeply concerned about is that this is going to end up having devastating consequences for people who can't end up finding enough hours at work or getting a job. They're going to end up losing their health insurance in a really, really cruel and counterproductive way that is actually going to backfire if the goal is helping people work. That was Rebecca Vallis of the Center for American Progress and the Off-Kilter podcast. We will link to this full interview at the Descent website. It's been a rough year for digital media as every big labor win seems to be followed by a major collapse, a wave of layoffs, or yet another public relations scandal involving some obnoxious Silicon Valley bro who's doing something scandalous. But this week brought some especially good news in the new and not-so-media business. Uh, there's a big win for News Guild at the LA Times. After over a century of resisting unionization, the paper's staff ended this bitter standoff. The vote was overwhelmingly in favor to unionize out of the 292 ballots cast. 248 favored unionization. And the union vote comes at an opportune moment because the company could really use a morale boost. Uh, It has been rocked by a sexual harassment scandal, one of many unfolding in Tinseltown right now, of course, Uh, this one involving publisher Ross Levinson. The union is ready to move forward with a clean slate, though. They are demanding, quote, uh, more competitive salaries, annual raises, equal pay for women and minorities, and lower health premiums, among other goals, according to Splinter. Speaking of slates across the country and the East Coast, Writers Guild East, which has unionized a number of digital newsrooms over the past few years, scored a big win at Slate, one of the old stalwarts of digital media, I guess. The staff voted overwhelmingly to unionize. According to the union, quote, the organizing win at Slate comes two weeks after Vox Media recognized the WGAE as the union representative for their editorial and video staff. Over 1,000 digital news staff members have joined the WGAE in the last two and a half years. In addition to Slate and Vox Media, which has uh, Eater, Polygon, Racked, Recode, The Verge, uh, and Vox, among others, uh, the Guild represents staff's advice, HuffPost, The Intercept, Gizmodo, um, Think Progress, MTV News, Thrillist, and Salon. So both new and old media, some good news on the union front. But... Things are still looking perilous for digital media in general. Um, There's been danger for the industry as a whole with growing financial instability. A number of corporate restructurings have taken place. Ahem, DNA info, the Gothamist, ahem. So the rise of social media and these new developments in digital media and all the startup hype surrounding them has so far not proven to be a terribly effective business model. Um, And they're still grappling for ways to scale up as well as treat their workers fairly. One thing that is almost certainly guaranteed not to help a company prosper, of course, is cutting back on good content and uh, stable staff. And uh, that seems to be the approach that way too many newsrooms, old and new, are taking these days. Hopefully now more unions will keep bosses from exploiting their new media outlets like the overinflated cash cow it's often been seen as. 
Um, organizing unions at smaller workplaces like Slate, of course, is often criticized as a burden on innovation or an unnecessary interference with the, you know, buddy-buddy relationship with these workforces. But it's actually the best protection these workers have in the growing but increasingly precarious and unequal new economy. Good news for unions? Who knew? But it, the data is in and union membership actually ticked upwards in 2017 in the midst of, you know, all hell breaking loose all over the country. Don't worry, the Janus case is still looming in case you thought we were getting too optimistic around here. Oh, and there's the general shape of the union membership graph over the last few decades, which is a pretty much straight down line. But anyway, our friends at the Center for Economic and Policy Research broke down the numbers. A net total of 262,000 union members were added in the past year. Overall, membership and coverage rates didn't change much. 10.7% of the workforce are members of a union, while 11.9% are covered by a union contract. 164,000 of those new members were in the private sector, while 98,000 were in the public sector. 201,000 of them, or more than three-quarters of the new union members, were under the age of 35. Let's hear it for millennials. Those younger workers are joining unions faster than any other age cohort, and this, EPR notes, is a change from past trends where older workers tended to join unions faster. Workers defined as Hispanic accounted for 65% of the union members added in 2017, the second largest percentage change for that group of workers on record. I would, of course, love more information about whether Trumpism had influence on Latino workers seeking union protections. The largest gains in any particular state came from, surprisingly, Texas, followed by New York, big ups to my media union colleagues, and recently right-to-work Michigan. Losses, however, came in California, recently right-to-work Indiana, of all these plant closures we keep hearing about, and recently right-to-work Missouri, which we have also discussed on recent podcasts. Increases by industry were highest in public administration, construction, healthcare services outside of the hospital, and retail. Losses were highest in education and transportation and warehousing. There is, of course, a lot to unpack here, but the hopeful sign is that, hey, young people appear to be interested in unions. Did you join a union in 2017? Get at us at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. There will be, of course, more information about this at the Descent website. In our continuing attempts to be optimistic around here, we are welcoming Rachel Cohen to the show to talk about the labor movement's post-Trump plans. Planning ahead is, well, good, and labor is doing some of it, looking forward to a time beyond Trump tweets and the constant outrage cycle and the very real attacks on working people to a time when maybe labor will be able to accomplish some positive change. Rachel is a D.C.-based freelance journalist and a contributing writer at The Intercept, where she reported on the labor movement's plans for a potential anti-Trump wave and what might be done with that majority in a story titled How the Labor Movement is Thinking Ahead to a Post-Trump World. So let's just start with where we are in Washington today, yeah. right now, uh, in day one or two post-shutdown, and uh, where we go from here. Um, what what do you think of yeah. when we think of the future of labor reform? Well, can I vent about D.C. for a second? Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm also really, like, pissed off this week. I feel like I'm watching as just 
new conventional wisdom is quickly ossifying around me, all of a sudden you have all these people being like, well, you know, Democrats are in the minority and immigration is a really tough issue. And Democrats really never had that much room to work on this on DACA anyway. And, and it's like all of a sudden, uh, now that the shutdown's over, now that it's being pushed back, everyone's like, well, you know, I mean, this is kind what are they supposed to do if they if they don't have the votes? And, and it's so frustrating because the politics looked really different before Republicans got their huge ass tax cuts. Democrats could have shut down the government before then. It would have been a lot harder for, you know, Republicans to pass trillion dollar tax cut when the government was shut down. Um, yeah, like they've had leverage and they chose to push off the DACA fight to 2018. They chose to like end the shutdown after two days. They've chosen to do all these things. And now everyone's like, well, you know, it's it's a really tough situation. And I think Chuck Schumer's, you know, really trying in good faith. So uh, and I just it's so <laughs> <laughs> They managed to give up every point of leverage that they possibly could have in the worst possible way at the worst possible time. Like that, yeah. it almost takes talent. So I watched Chuck Schumer's um, interview with Rachel Maddow this week, and uh, she was like, "How would you, how would you get the House to vote for it at this point?" He's like, "Well, you know, I think that, you know, if it came down to it, the like really horrible images of Dreamers being deported would rally the nation, and then that would put pressure on the few moderate Republicans of the House." And it's like, what is that? I I was so speechless that like this is that this is the cruelest and stupidest strategy I've ever heard. And I don't know, I'm very like very uncomfortable. Those really horrible images of deportations that aren't already happening or anything. Yeah, exactly. I was like, there's already awful images and no one's doing anything. All right, so we're gonna talk through a several decade history of Democrats failing. Um, so you start off in your article talking about these two major moments when Democrats could have done labor law reform when they controlled all parts of the government like the Republicans do right now. And the first one of those is 1978, where there were attempts to reform the NLRA under Carter. Mm-hmm. And you write about why and how those failed. So what were unions and their allies in Congress trying for in 1978? And why did those fail ultimately? In the 70s, there was a lot of pressure to update the law after Taft-Hartley. And the same reasons that it's failing people now, it was failing people then. And so all of these problems that people identify with, like, you know, oh, employers can violate the law with, imp- with impunity, or like nobody really does, or even if you do get through an election, nobody will bargain with you. Like all this stuff was known 40 years ago. And so, you know, there was pressure to make progress. And, you know, I didn't go into it fully. And there's obviously, like longer book treatments on the subject. But Carter was supportive, but also, like, you know, he wanted to do other stuff first. I think he did, like, the Panama Canal first. I think he was, like, focused on other stuff. And he was receptive to getting behind this. I think more so than, I guess, probably Obama was with F- with the Employee Free Choice Act. Um, but there still was, like, this kind of questionable relationship between labor and the administration and how, and how much they were going to prioritize it. But then there were a lot of anti-union Southern Democrats still. Um, but yeah, a 44-year-old freshman from Republican named Orrin Hatch, he filibustered the bill, 
when it had 59 votes in the Senate. And so I think, like, you know, Labor looks at that and be like, we were so close. And they were, I think, pretty close. And I think that things would look pretty different if that had passed. But, um, you know, they just they didn't get it done. And then they didn't have an opportunity again, really, to push those same things for a long time after that. The other thing that you mentioned at that period in time that was going on was the Humphrey Hawkins full employment bill, which started off as this radical jobs guarantee that would have actually committed the U.S. government to some kind of like economic planning. And that ended up as sort of a watered down gesture, largely because the Democratic president didn't really, again, sort of want to. Right go there. Um, so what signal did this kind of send at the time, at this moment, when when we look back on it, we realize that politics was radically changing, right? That this was a radical shift in the Democratic Party. What kind of signal did that send to people at the time? And what lessons can we take from it now as, like, yet again, the Democratic leadership fails to fight? Yeah. If I mean, we have a Democratic president that then, you know, Cory Booker gets in and, and th- says he wants to do single payer health care, but then suddenly is like, oh, never mind. Right. I mean, yeah, I I do think that there is a connection between the fact that, you know, Carter wasn't being uh, really supportive behind the boldest ideas on labor that they could have. And so, you know, when they had other ideas that are important, but even less bold, it's like you... There, like the amount of enthusiasm and political capital you're putting behind all these things affects all of them. It's not like, oh, I'm going to be like, there's this idea like we can just compromise on this stuff. And so if we don't really push for the really bold thing, and then maybe people will still be motivated to do other stuff that needs to get done. But like, as we've seen, pushing for really bold stuff and then creates the energy and the momentum to do more. And I think Democrats have had that backwards for a really long time, where they're like, let's not push for the really bold thing so we can get this other stuff done, and then they get nothing done. Fast forwarding now to a more recent era of, uh, of failure in government, um, <laughs> you, uh, you go to the Employee Free Choice Act, uh, remember that, of, of 2009 <laughs> and the slow and steady uh, death of the bill through a lot of deal-making in Congress. And I was wondering what lessons labor yeah. as well as lawmakers can pull from that earlier failure, um, which really failed for all the reasons Washington so often fails, um, and, and how we might go forward with um, legislative battles under what looks like a much more hostile atmosphere in Congress. I think that's true. It was interesting when I started to do research for the piece before I started calling people, I was surprised at how little really has been written about this fight uh, before. You would think because it was the last really huge federal fight, there would have been more treatment of it, but there really wasn't, which... At the time it was happening, it was really hard to get labor stories published. (laughs) <laughs> as a person attempting to be a labor journalist in 2009. <laughs> yeah, um, well, that's interesting. Yeah, because that makes sense. And what I learned as a result of it is that people still really disagree on, you know, what happened or who, or who messed up. And, like, there are people in labor who still to this day, like, think they did, that they made no mistakes. And it was just all, you know, Arkansas Democrats who couldn't get on board with what needed to be happening. And I think that is a mistake. 
way to look at it because I think that there were some problems within labor. I mean, even as I was doing this reporting, I feel like I've I've written about labor a lot. I'm I have I'm not an expert, but I have a definitely above average knowledge of terminology and, and some of the history. And I was kind of blown away by all this new jargon I hadn't even really been learning about. And you know, people were talking about just enterprise bargaining, and I was like, what is what does that mean? And it, and it's like, oh, that's just regular collective bargaining at your job. Um, and it's fine if people, you know, experts talk in non-layman's terms, but I was conscious as I was doing the reporting that a lot of these really good ideas are also not being talked about in the ways that, you know, the, the reason that the fight for 15 was so powerful is because everyone could understand it really easily. And you learn that these same people who are now brainstorming these very good but complex ideas, a lot of them thought the fight for 15 was a crazy idea when it first started and they dismissed it and then they were like, oh, you know, surprised, happily surprised that it worked out. So you, there is a sense of like, are they learning the lesson? Are we realizing that we need to be thinking about framing? And, and I will say like Sean Richmond, I think is doing a lot around thinking about framing. So he's been a, you know, I think good exception that comes to mind. And is there, uh, is there actually an Ethka version on the table currently or um, some form? Does it, does it live on in some form or is it pretty much dead on arrival now? So no one's pushing card check, which I think is interesting because pe- I think the public probably equates EFCA with card check in their mind. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But there is two sort of main, well, there's a, package of, there's a package of ideas under the banner of a better deal. And then there's a bill called the Wage Act, which at least is probably better named than EFCA. <laughs> a better acronym is, uh, is a start, I guess. Yeah, I feel like we're at a really low bar with this. <laughs> it's a word that people understand. Yeah, it's like, ESCA isn't a word, and also no one knows what card check is, so both of those were very confusing. But the Wage Act, I think while people in unions and labor recognize that the things that that is pushing for are necessary reforms and those things are making it easier for workers to organize and stiffening penalties against employers and you know, uh, allowing workers to file discrimination lawsuits if they're punished, these things. But I do feel like stiffer employer penalties and faster elections and stuff like that, they're not mistakes to push for, but they are not necessarily clear to the amount of people we need to get excited about ideas, I think. to So I just, I, I think there needs to be conscious thought of that when we're putting together packages of ideas of like what's going to be the thing that everyone thinks of and how exciting is that thing can you talk about what the wage act is what it consists of and how it might differ from EFCA? the biggest difference between this and EFCA is it doesn't have the card check proposal and that was the most controversial idea like you're not going to have rick berman bankrolling you're not going to have George McGovern. Yeah, Scott Walker's not going like, <laughs> to come out of the ashes of, of the Wage Act. Uh, but, I mean, the Wage Act is kind of just these sort of ideas that they've been trying to pass since the 70s in a lot of ways. I think the, the filing discrimination lawsuits is, I think, a newer idea. But a lot of them are just these same things that labor has been trying for so long. And because they, they recognize that it's really hard to form 
unions and that they need to focus on organizing. And that's true. But I think I think you also need to be proposing ideas that people already in unions can be really jazzed about and, and people who might not have an opportunity to join unions in the near future can also be excited about. Yeah, I mean, it, it's tough even for workplaces that, that do have a union. And, um, and it seems like the actual access to rights under the NLRA, under this NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board under Trump, oh. it's going to take a very sharp rightward turn. And I guess that raises questions on how useful is um, the NLRA or the NLRB process under this yeah. administration? I mean, is it even worth it to uh, bring cases before that body when we see them uh, actually, you know, turning it into an agency that exists basically to weaken labor law? Yeah, I mean, I will say I had some people respond to my article being like, why would labor even look to Democrats anyway? Who cares about Congress and, you know, F the Dems and and understandable reaction. But I do feel (laughs) like that is a mistake to think that all the damage that Republicans do on the federal level or can do, it can't just be, oh, let's focus on local organizing because you can really make that easier or harder based on what happens in Congress or at the NLRB. And and even, yeah, NLRB appointments, I feel like sometimes people are like, that's an elite technocratic thing, like, let's just organize. But they're so connected because the NLRB makes, can make it really hard or really easy to organize. And so I hope that people don't dismiss D.C., even though D.C. is awful. <laughs> Very tension there. I mean, with the um, sort of the the intricacies of administrative law, I mean, a lot of these decisions play out at the lower level, so they might not even make it to DC yeah. itself. So, and so it's it's a it's a careful thread. So the the article was generally just looking looking toward um, a, a post Trump political era, or at least an era in which we are sort of resigned ourselves to the existence of the Trump administration. Um, to what extent should we have to, should we be investing any any faith in in Washington at this point? Um, because a, a lot of this still does come down to what leverage the labor movement has with the Democratic yeah. Party, and they've been basically doing nothing but taking labor for granted, both you know inside and outside of unions. Um, and there's been an autopsy and and whatnot of um, you know what uh, what progressives should really do with respect to the to the party and the DNC, um, to what extent is this an issue of getting the Democrats to look within and, and reform from the inside, especially when it comes down to primaries and, and local races? I guess before, like post-Trump, but I think now and in sort of in the next couple of years, what I think is interesting about this opportunity is that there's sort of a space before the kind of politicking, campaigning stuff happens and that becomes more sort of like conventional Democrats, et cetera, where I feel like there's a space for ideas to and conversations to be entering the zeitgeist. And like the, the fact that the New York Times ran an op-ed about maybe a national just cause law, I thought was incredible. And I think there is, and Carrie Gleason talks about this in my piece, but I think there is just a profound lack of understanding amongst the public about what rights the workers have or don't have on their job at their job. And so I feel like getting people to learn about the situation before we come to like what bill needs to be introduced, I think 
getting people mad and you know awake and aware and this there's sort of this convenient opportunity also where you do have some democrats who are going to be looking for ways to stand out in a primary and and in a like in a place where they're trying to get space from chuck schumer who or get space or like appeal to millennials or do whatever and so i feel like there's almost a race to the left in some ways like you can this is a time where like really different ideas can be introduced and maybe some enterprising smart candidate who's going to want to capture people's imaginations can latch on to ideas because everyone's kind of everyone in dc kind of is like stumbling around trying to find what good ideas they could use to make themselves look good or run on and so i feel like before we get necessarily to what democrats have to do this is a cool time for progressive organizations and labor people to be kind of putting pressure on them to adopt certain ideas Certainly, I mean, the, the last election, if anything, was at least a, a wake-up call. Sanders remains the most popular politician in the country. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and last- exactly. People who want to compete with Sanders are like, but what should I do? And, and as you know, like, so many people here have literally no ideas on what to do. So um, it's kind of, it, like, that's annoying. I'm like, why don't you have ideas? But also there's opportunity to kind of push them in maybe a, bolder direction than like the wage act or something. Yeah. Yeah. So you talked to some labor leaders and thinkers about some, some possibilities for um, bigger ideas on the wage act. Um, They're looking to other countries for inspiration. And it seems like they're thinking about how we understand collective bargaining a little differently. Um, So what are some of the ideas that people were talking about um, that might actually shake up how we think about how unions work in this country. Yeah. And this is something Larry Cohen, when I talked to him, he said this, and I I put this in the piece, but he said, you know, people are always lecturing us about the global economy. Well, we need to lecture them back. And his point being that in all these other, we always talking about global competitiveness, but in other countries, other democratic countries, it's, so much easier to be in unions and, you know, sectoral bargaining is a thing. I'll, I'll get back to that. But, you know, there's just certain ideas about the relation between workers and management are just um, not disputed in the same way they are in the U.S. And and so if we want to compete with those countries, like why aren't we doing that? If we're worried we're falling behind. So I thought that was provocative. So some of the ideas... Um, so this is this is a term which I also think is kind of jargony, and I hope that there can be sort of a better way to describe it. But you know, this idea of sectoral bargaining, which really is easier to to understand, just the fight for fifteen. That was a campaign for fast food workers, and so the idea is why you know on Wall Street, what if all finance workers pushed for like a forty dollar minimum wage because they have the money in that industry to be paying workers, you know, that kind of wage or, you know, in fast food, like if, you know, we had 15, maybe we push like, but I don't know, go higher than that. Um, But the idea is sort of like banding together in industries to set sort of industry floors. And I think there's different arrangements um, of how those kind of floors can be set or how you push for that. But that, 
seems to be a, a really kind of effective and important mechanism that other countries use to, you know, raise wages and, and set standards. So that seems to be something that we could definitely be trying or exploring. I mean, there's a lot of like case studies, I guess. The other ones were, so uh, this idea of, of treating your worker rights as constitutional rights or sort of setting a labor bill of rights where you have kind of bold things that workers can feel entitled to. Like you can't just get fired for having an opinion that your boss doesn't like. I mean, it's weird. I think people just don't realize that that's the case today or, you know, that you can get fired for being disloyal, uh, quote unquote. So those I thought, I think that's uh, a powerful kind of direction to go in. So at the grassroots level, there's there's actually been, uh, it's like we're on these twin tracks and we talk about rights at work because um, there, there's at the same time, um, at a time of you know record weakness for unions, there's still a lot of widespread popular support for things like the minimum wage, um, raising the minimum wage. You know, we obviously have the the dialogue around the fight for 15, but people are also looking at other universal measures such as paid leave expansion, um, universal child care, and other yeah. sort of basic standard of living measures um, that really go beyond just unions themselves. Um, and a lot of those are actually being pushed on the local level with ballot measures, um, which tend to be pretty surprisingly popular. Um, yes. So is that where the power for organizing really um, should should be focused now? Uh, you know, maybe less on the mechanics of Washington and legislation and more on just getting stuff on the ballot? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just both because I think that the kind of stuff that's getting passed, like minimum wage increases are getting passed in red states on ballot initiatives, and that's amazing. And you have sort of these really creative progressive advances happening in places like California and Washington and New York. But like, there's, I think a really rightful skepticism that if you keep going like this, are you just going to have a couple States with really progressive stuff and, and a lot of the country without it, or are you going to, is it ever going to actually, and, and that's why, that's why I just don't think Washington can be, sort of disbanded or discarded because I think that is really important for making it easier in the states that are hard, that are not, you know, Portland or Seattle. Um, and also because preemption is a, is a thing that's like threatening gains that city blue states are making in like Ohio or Minnesota. And, and, you know, preemption is a state level issue in a lot of cases, but, you know, Republicans are also exploring national preemption, which is crazy. So I think that the local organizing and, and the gains have been transformative for also, you know, changing people's imaginations about what they can be demanding. And uh, Sarita Gupta was telling me about the kind of universal care package that they're pushing for in Maine that I hadn't heard of. But, you know, it's like this really just something that includes child care and elder care and, you know, all of these things that people really need and just can't afford and don't have. And, and so, you know, that to me is like, I heard that and I just got excited. And, and so, you know, maybe, maybe the kind of exciting ideas are just easier on a state or local level, but I, I just worry about what happens if we, you know, just double down on that. And 
Um, right. Yeah, I mean, there, there's something to be said for, like, the states being laboratories of innovation or whatever, since, um, right. you know, even on their own, states have managed to push the minimum wage way higher in a lot of places than, than uh, the current federal minimum wage. So one last thing we wanted to tackle is um, there's, yeah. there's a lot of talk about uh, alt-labor and these sort of alternative uh, movement mechanisms where people are actually mobilizing outside of the traditional union structure. So yeah. that, that sort of looks at and- what labor is beyond um, what, what labor could be if it were yeah. more of a movement and less of an actual focus on institutions um, of, of unionization. So I guess, like, is that where things are going since unions do represent so little of the workforce these days? Hey, it went up this year. Um, I mean, I, I will just say, like, the article sort of, uh, you know, use the term labor movement, which we associate with unions, but a lot of the, like, really creative and most interesting ideas were coming from people who I think are, you know, outside of unions, but, like, just think about these issues a lot or are working in these, you know, progressive or alternative groups. So I, I definitely think that it's better if, if we don't just think of the labor movement as like the AFL-CIO or, or whatever. Um, but I know like people do think that. Um, but I, I definitely think that you have the people who are thinking most creatively are often not in unions. And, and like what you were just saying, I think those um, workplaces are trying to figure out what, um, how you make it work if you, if you don't have collective bargaining and you don't have these traditional things we associate. And and I think maybe in those cases, that's also a place where the state can be more useful because if there are a lot of workplaces that don't have the ability to bargain with your employer, well, like, let's make sure that the state is giving them, you know, the benefits that, that they can give that, that they need um, healthcare and childcare and all these other things. So I don't know, I guess this is not really directly responsive, but I definitely agree with you that that's a huge part of, that needs to be a huge part of this directional conversation. And, and, and I don't look to like the AFL-CIO as, as the final word on this conversation at all. And that was Rachel Cohen, a freelance labor writer, talking about her new piece up at The Intercept, looking at post-Trump labor reform. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG! I wish I'd written that. And my pick for this episode is The Problem of Workplace Democracy by Barry Eidlin and Micah Utrecht at New Labor Forum. It's also available on the East Times website. We seem to have a keen sense of what democracy means in our everyday political process. Um, It's not always apparent in this country, of course, but, you know, we have these general principles like one person, one vote, uh, freedom of speech, freedom to assemble, worship, uh, be protected from discrimination, etc. And yet our sense of those rights seems to end once we set foot in the workplace. Why is that? The use of non-disclosure agreements to hamper sexual harassment victims from speaking out, uh, putting up with racial epithets from bosses, accepting massive gender wage gaps is simply part of the cost of doing business, even in professional white-collar workplaces. 
all these basic injustices are seen as things we just have to learn to grin and bear at work. And the authors ask us, employers can limit what people can and cannot say at work or where and when they assemble with few exceptions. Employers can largely fire, hire, and discipline workers at will. To the extent that employers treat their workers well, it is entirely at their discretion as irrevocable and subject to change without notice as a king's writ. So why is this? So it turns out that we're not, nor have we always been, condemned to a system of workplace dictatorship. Um, And uh, to get over this question is to just simply rethink what workplace democracy and worker voice really means today. And to understand this means going back to the roots of the labor movement and its first principles. The development of Western industrial capitalism began in many ways as a history of the evolution of this idea called free labor. Um, now, around the time after we abolished slavery, it came clear that um, part of citizenship was uh, freedom over one's labor, that is, economic autonomy as the truest expression of liberty, the truest way to participate in any form of civil society, a precept of citizenship, and a foundation of a truly free society. Early labor organizers, Eidlin and Utrecht Wright, uh, quote, saw a close link between economic and political democracy, and they argued that they could not be full citizens in a republic if they were wage slaves at work. Uh, To some extent, uh, they in fact rejected wage labor in general as a form of slavery. They saw the control over workers' time and their physical bodies as violations of personal liberty. This was back when people honored things like the guild, craftsmanship. This was when society was transitioning out of an era of journeymen and apprentices. Um, So to some extent, this is the way that things proceeded in the following decades, but industrialization and labor mechanization eventually shifted um, the system to basically kill the idea of workers' autonomy. The whole idea of the value of labor was effectively suspended by the increasing use of automation and the general massification of the workforce. And this was a pernicious problem. Workers themselves were no longer craftspeople or tradesmen. They were simply interchangeable automatons. They could be easily replaced and hence easily fired. Employers passed laws to increasingly curtail the rights of workers to strike while limiting power and autonomy in their everyday dealings and workplace relationships. To suppress strikes, the laws are retooled to prioritize the freedom of bosses to profit over the workers' rights to be free from, say, violence in the hands of thugs who would violently suppress any kind of uh, organizing activity or uprising at work. And uh, then there was a major shift during the Great Depression. The economic uh, displacement and the desperation of poverty drove millions to basically throw capitalism into crisis. And in the growing turmoil, um, the system responded. They, They gave a little bit. Um, quote, the struggles of the 1930s and 1940s marked a decisive and contradictory shift in the fight over workplace democracy, they write, establishing the Wagner Act model as the basis for extending certain democratic rights into the workplace. On the other hand, there were, of course, limits. The focus became more about ensuring workers had enough at work, that they could live a decent, uh, resembling middle-class lifestyle. There would be a minimum wage, some modicum of job security, a certain level of collective bargaining power in exchange for, say, labor peace, agreeing not to strike. 
The focus was not on workers' real voice or about militancy or even about exercising real democracy. It was about keeping the entire workplace under control and keeping that power relationship in balance. But uh, that balance was untenable. They explain, quote, in addition to reinforcing existing gender and racial inequalities, as many scholars have noted, the New Deal, that was under uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, reoriented conceptions of economic citizenship around guaranteeing an American standard of living, a level of material security that would allow primarily white male workers to support their families and fully participate in society. And this was, of course, a devil's bargain, and we're paying for it to this day. Militant unionists were, in the following decades, purged from the labor movement, and the general standard way of organizing became about ensuring in the eyes of mainstream unions like the UAW that, quote, American standard of living. But it rejected a vision of citizenship that really engaged the workplace, and that would remain the management's sovereign domain, uh, with certain civil rights spelled out and enforced via a bureaucratic governance procedure. The focus was on labor peace, allowing capitalism to flourish, all boats rise, yada yada, and that was an epic fail. Today, the rise of neoliberalism, the use of contract labor, and the erosion of economic and job security overall around the world has fed into a system and a global culture of the workplace in which workers basically are utterly disempowered. They're expected to do their boss's bidding no matter what. Racism, sexism, other forms of discrimination pervade uh, boss's rule essentially overall. So what can work to restructure this workplace so that there is a dynamic democracy at work rather than a dynamic of slavery? Quote, while currently not at the scale needed, some cross-union efforts suggest the kinds of tools that could help rebuild this critical workplace infrastructure, they write. These networks could play key roles in future efforts at organizing, articulating, and enforcing new conceptions of workplace democracy. They could train and mobilize shop floor activists who could not only serve in day-to-day -day battles over shop floor grievances and contract campaigns, but in agitating coworkers specifically around the lack of full citizenship rights on the job, close quote. So in a way, the dilemma of the lack of workplace democracy can be answered by simply getting people to organize around workplace democracy in and of itself. By creating a more politically conscious and class-conscious labor force, people will intrinsically be more ready to internalize and to defend those rights on an everyday level. Of course, we're looking at an extremely weakened labor movement, as we just discussed with Rachel, and uh, the entire left has really taken a beating since basically the Reagan administration and our generation is currently paying for it. Um, but fortunately, we're starting to come around uh, with organizations like the DSA and with the Fight for 15 movement that the answer to the problem of workplace democracy lies in the very question itself. Making the workplace political is just good workplace politics. We've had a generation of making the personal political after all, so what could be more personal, and hence political, than the place where we are spending most of our lives? We talked about temporary protected status on last week's podcast as the Trump administration eliminated TPS status for some 200,000 people from El Salvador. Well, some of those Salvadoran migrants are awfully close to where the source of the problem is coming from, 
They work in congressional office buildings. Dave Jameson at the Huffington Post has a piece titled, These Women Have Spent Years Cleaning Up After Senators Who Now Want to Deport Them, looking at the unglamorous work that goes into keeping those buildings clean and nice and shiny for the people who are voting to deport immigrants. He writes, quote, the Washington area is home to an estimated 32,000 TPS holders from El Salvador, the largest such concentration in the nation. Low-wage Salvadorans with TPS protections serve members of Congress and White House officials every day, whether the latter realize it or not. These workers bust the tables at fancy K Street restaurants. They park the cars in expensive garages. They vacuum the downtown office buildings long after dark. And they pick up the mess left behind at the Senate salad bar. So while the imminent end of TPS has left Salvadorans around the country with wrenching decisions to make, the federal government's about face comes with a dose of painful irony for Washington area workers like Guzman. They're being given the boot by the political elite for whom they've labored many years, end quote. Raquel Guzman, who Dick Jameson talks to for the story, has been cleaning sneeze guards and picking up dropped produce at the Dirksen Senate office building for 10 years. She has lived in the U.S. for almost 20 I have never asked anything of the government, she says. Maria Fuentes, also a decade-long employee of the Senate building, echoes her sentiment. The Trump administration, Jameson notes, said that it expects Salvadorans with TPS to either secure legal residency or leave the country when their protections expire. Neither Guzman nor Fuentes has one of the most promising routes to parole, a child at least 21 years old who is a citizen and can petition for their parent to stay. Immigration advocates are pressuring Congress to provide TPS recipients like them with new protections, such as eligibility for green cards. So far, there are no signs of a bipartisan fix, end quote. So while workers like Fuentes and Guzman face wrenching decisions as to whether to leave or try and stay and probably be forced into a gray labor market, they have to stare down the people who could, in fact, make their lives significantly easier. It may have been Trump's decision to eliminate their protected status, but Congress could, in fact, do something. And perhaps the most important part of this story comes at the end. Americans tend to think of immigrant workers from Latin America as a cheap, unskilled labor force, even as they simultaneously blame them for taking good jobs from U.S.-born workers. But, Jameson notes, if those tens of thousands of workers are pushed out of D.C.'s workforce, we'll see exactly how skilled they were, as companies will have to train new workers to do the jobs Fuentes and Guzman have been doing for a decade. Then we'll begin to understand that while their precarious residency status has kept their labor undervalued, they are hardly unskilled workers. We will get a reminder that far from a plan for raising wages, Trumpist crackdowns on immigrant workers are actually a strategy for keeping labor cheap and compliant. That is all we have time for today. Thank you for listening. As always, we appreciate your support and a special thanks to our monthly sustaining members. You too can sign up to support our podcast at descentmagazine.org slash belabored membership. $5 a month gets you a sweet belabored tote bag. And if that's not in your budget, you can also leave us reviews at iTunes, recommend us to your friends. All of your support is appreciated. And of course, you can always tweet at us at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are a TPS recipient or a media union member, if you are part of a prison strike, or if you are planning labor's next move in post-Trump America, if you have suggestions and ideas for us, we always want to hear from you. We will be back in two weeks. Solidarity. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hey, twin, the fact, hell no, we can't go.
You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belaboured podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belaboured. <laughs>